Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. Last week was a good one for Canadian banks. The big five, as they're known, each reported better than expected results in the third quarter of the year. Profit increased by the billions and shares hit record highs across the board. But there could be a new challenge looming for the Canadian banks. This week, Liberal Party leader Justin Trudeau pledged to increase taxes for Canada's biggest financial institutions. That means if the Liberals were elected, banks could see their corporate tax rate increase from 15 to 18%. Trudeau said the banks have recovered faster and stronger than other industries and should essentially pay up. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I talked about this policy idea and whether it's an effective tool in the pandemic recovery. Well, I would say two things. I mean, if the goal is to generate more revenue, it strikes me as an effective tool in the sense that um, these companies are domiciled in, in Canada. You know, they are not generally kind of globalized companies. There's not a risk of capital flight as there may be in other sectors. So, you know, if you're looking to generate revenue, um, introducing a, a, um, a tax or a surtax on financial institutions will probably generate the revenue that the government wants, which you, you may not, you couldn't say necessarily in other parts of the economy where um, businesses might, might respond by shifting profits overseas or actually moving operations. So that's one way to answer your question. The second way I, I would I would answer it, Alicia, is I tried to think yesterday of a case where we have punitive taxes on particular sectors, and I, I can't think of any. There are some cases where we have preferential tax rates on a sector basis. So, for instance, the government of Ontario charges a slightly lower tax rate for the manufacturing sector. We also, of course, have preferential tax rates in Canada for small businesses. But I I can't think of another case where we impose a higher tax rate than um, the general corporate tax rate on particular sectors or, or particular companies. Um, so just as a kind of matter of tax policy, the idea that you would um, single out a particular industry or particular firms strikes me as odd. It, it, it kind of fails the basic tax principle of equity or horizontal or vertical equity, the idea that um, you know everyone ought to be Treated, treated essentially the same. I guess just the last thing, I can't miss the opportunity to make a kind of small p political observation, which is, you know, the, the Liberal Party is competing with the New Democratic Party um, for progressive voters. And, you know, it seems to me that a punitive tax targeting um, financial institutions is part of an overall political strategy to appeal um, to progressive voters, and I suppose it will leave it to political pundits to determine whether it may or may not be effective in that way. But as a matter of tax policy, uh, it, it does strike me as an odd choice. Yeah, I think that idea you, you heard Trudeau off the top there saying, you know, the banks did so well because you saved and and Canadians were the ones that, you know, helped them in, when it came to boosting profits. And, and so this is kind of, it seemed like the argument is sharing the wealth. Uh, given that they did so well through the pandemic. Um, do you think that's a fair way to approach this recovery and, and dealing with how they did through the pandemic? I mean, I suppose I understand the kind of conceptual argument. And, and, and I, should, I should emphasize, defending big banks um, is, is never an easy task. Um, but, but 
Yeah, it just it just strikes me as odd. You know, there are other sectors, other businesses that have performed extraordinarily well over the course of the pandemic, and they're not being subject to these surtaxes. The other thing, of course, is that the banks in particular have played a pretty crucial role in carrying out some of the government's pandemic uh, emergency pandemic policies, including, for instance, the infusion of cash into small businesses. So, you know, the idea that the big banks were not a kind of overall partner in the pandemic response is, again, just strikes me as odd. But, you know, we're in an election campaign and and it's not uncommon for odd things to, to, to come up and, and um and, and this just happens to be one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, the banks were the ones that were uh, running one of the marquee loan programs for businesses, the Canada Business Account. Uh, that was all done uh, through the banks. So they have been, you're right, close partners through all this. Um, do you see any, I know that the Canadian banking sector is highly regulated. Do you see any potential unintended consequences of this tax hike? Uh, you know, we often hear about companies just fleeing to other jurisdictions. Banks can't do that in Canada, obviously, but they do do a lot of business in places like the U.S. Is So is there risk here? Uh, are there potential unintended consequences of this policy? I, I think to the extent they are, Alicia, it'll, it'll be sort of unseen. There'll be there's sort of opportunity costs that will come with um, a greater share of profits going to government as opposed to other activities, whether it's you know, whether it's capital investment within the banks themselves, whether it's less resources dedicated to kind of philanthropic activities, or whether it's um, whether it, it results in um, smaller dividends for um, for shareholders. You know, as I say, no one is going to kind of uh, weep on behalf of the banks. But, you know, it, it's a it's just a, a sort of axiom that any policy produces a response. Sometimes those responses are large and seen, and sometimes they're, um, they're, they're more unseen. I suspect that'll be the case um, here. But make no mistake, there, there will be consequences from this policy. And, and you know, I guess uh, we'll, we'll have to wait for over time to see if, if, if it's ultimately implemented and what those um, consequences may be. As we discussed on the live show, this tax hike is clearly being pitched as a way to help rebuild after the pandemic. COVID-19 brought unprecedented spending from the government. And so far, the federal election campaign has featured more spending proposals. Dealing with the deficit has not exactly been a hot topic on the campaign trail. After we wrapped up the live show, I asked Sean about the post-pandemic recovery and this shifting mindset around the deficit. Yeah, it's a great question, Alicia. I mean, not only have we seen an extraordinary spending in the course of the pandemic, the government is also spending an incremental $100 billion over the next three years to stimulate post-pandemic recovery. And then on top of that, each of the major parties has been announcing their own uh, spending promises over the first couple of weeks of this campaign. Um, and so I think it's natural for listeners to ask the question, you, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, spending, but not a lot of talk about revenue, um, or more fundamentally, um, you know, are we ever going to balance the budget again? Is that a, a priority? Um, and and so, you know, in this case, Mr. Trudeau has outlined um, some spending commitments and then an accompanying kind of revenue source to offset some of that spending. What's interesting, Alicia, kind of setting aside what one thinks about with respect to this particular tax 
is that there's been very little effort on the part of the different parties to outline um, offsets for their spending commitments, whether it's um, new revenues or spending reductions in other areas. What that says to me is that uh, past concerns about deficits and debt have really left our kind of political discourse. You know, it wasn't that long ago, Alicia, that there was basically an all-party consensus around the goal of a balanced budget. Um, you know, what's what's fascinating is people forget in the 2015 election campaign, the, the election campaign, of course, that the Liberal Party won and, and, and brought Mr. Trudeau to the prime ministership, the Liberals diverged from the Conservatives and the New Democrats when they promised to run deficits. Um, so even in 2015, the New Democratic Party, our, arguably our, our kind of most progressive party, was broadly supportive of the goal of, of balanced budgets. What an what an extraordinary kind of six-year sea change from a time when we were kind of debating balanced budgets to a time when really no party leader, including the conservatives, are talking seriously about um, the goal of balanced budgets in the short or even in medium term. So, you know, I, I think if if you had to pick one issue that has been omitted um, from the campaign trail thus far that surprised me the most, it's this one. I I wonder if the party leaders are underestimating the uh, level of concern on the part of Canadians, if not not about our um, short-term fiscal position. I think most people understand that we needed to take extraordinary steps in, 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 in the context of the pandemic. But over the medium and longer term, getting back to something resembling a, a balanced budget, and, and, and presently there's no kind of political party for people with those types of concerns. That, that, that's a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, it's interesting. We actually uh, conducted a poll in partnership with Maru Public Opinion uh, about what the key issues are for Canadian voters in this election. Affordability and cost of living was, was the top one. Climate change was number two. But making sure the uh, spending so that the deficit does not grow was actually the third most important issue ranked by those that were surveyed. And so it is very much something that voters are thinking about. But I think you're right. It hasn't been, you know, that ballot box issue when it comes to the campaign um, and what the leaders are saying. And so, I mean, what do you see as the potential consequences of this? Well, it, it seems to me the, the, the risk is whichever party ultimately wins the election is going to have significant fiscal commitments that they've made over the course of this campaign um, that is going to push the federal government's public finances further into deficit, not closer to a balanced budget. Presently, Alicia, as, as we record this, the Conservative Party and the Democrats haven't released the overall fiscal costing of their, of their individual promises or, or their overall platforms. That should come in the coming uh, days and weeks. Similarly, we don't have the kind of full costing from the Liberal Party for whom we're still waiting an, a, a complete um, party platform. But that said, we know that over the first couple of weeks of campaigning, we've seen you know extraordinary sums of money being committed by the different parties. Take one Conservative Party promise to restore the Canada health transfer to a growth rate of 6% per year. That single proposal is estimated to add $60 billion over the next decade um, to federal spending. And the truth is the New Democrats and the Liberal Party have made similar announcements. In fact, probably committed um, more in incremental spending. So that's a long way of saying whichever party gets elected, 
the likelihood is not that our spending is stabilized and we start to see progress towards a balanced budget. Um, it's al- almost certain to move in the opposite direction. That has um, different implications. Let me just raise two. Um, I'll stop rambling in a second. The, the first is it has intergenerational issues. You know, so much of our public spending is tilted in the direction of older Canadians. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that we have this uh, intergenerational inequity kind of built in to government spending in Canada. And that doesn't even account for um, the consequences of deficit and debt. So I think there is a kind of intergenerational reckoning to come in Canada um, because of this massive increase in our in deficits and debts um, in recent years and, and on a kind of ongoing basis. The second thing I'll just say quickly, Alicia, is that we're only talking about Ottawa right now. The truth is many Canadian provinces are already in kind of unsustainable positions uh, over the, the long term, primarily, again, because of of aging demographics and the cost that that will impose on their, their health care system. So, you know, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed we haven't seen a kind of greater discussion about these issues because they're no unknowns. These are not unforeseen um, developments. We, we know um, that we're going to have um, fiscal challenges down the line because of the arithmetic of, of aging demographics. And no party, at least at the federal level, seems um, prepared to have a kind of honest conversation about how to um, a- a- address those challenges in a, in a kind of proactive way. We're, instead, we're kind of walking backwards into you know what could be a fairly significant um, set of challenges for our, our governments. So do you see this as just being the way things work now uh, in terms of budgets and, and spending plans? Or at some point, is there going to be a reckoning that the government is going to have to deal with? Well, I think we kind of live in these sorts of ideological and political cycles, you know, listeners will know that, you know, really from 1995 to something like the start of the global financial crisis, we had a, as I said, a a kind of consensus around balanced budget. Um, That consensus is unraveled first, I think, because of the the deficits that were run in in response to the global financial crisis. And now, of course, um, the the global pandemic. Um, And so we we seem to be in a, a kind of period of of intellectual and political ferment when um, concerns about deficits and debt are, are diminished, at least amongst our political class. Uh, I, I presume that at some point the cycle will will change again and, and we'll see kind of renewed interest and attention paid to these issues. But uh, in the meantime, I think we're going to rack up a, a, a ton of deficit and debt that will necessarily have kind of consequences. May I just give one more example of a consequence? I talked about, you know, issues with respect to provincial governments. I I mentioned some of the intergenerational issues. One thing that concerns me the most, Alicia, is the kind of opportunity costs of different forms of public spending or different forms of public investment. So a lot of the commitments that we've made that have been made in, in the context of this campaign, I think could be described as kind of consumption type spending, spending on healthcare, spending on social services. That's not to diminish those types of forms of government spending. They're obviously important, but there's been little discussion of what you might describe as public investment spending, for instance, on research and development and other kind of productivity enhancing activities that are going to be crucial um, to growing our economy and ultimately kind of creating the conditions to generate the revenues to pay for social spending. So um, you know, the more public dollars that are going to towards consumption means that there's less that can go towards genuine forms of, 
of public investment. And again, that kind of distinction between spending uh, for consumption and spending for investment ha has been neglected so far in this campaign. And, and it's a ne neglect that um, I think our listeners ought to be um, concerned about. And I, I would just emphasize that that's not a partisan critique. Um, that really applies across the, the, the different parties. Well, we still have a few weeks left of this election campaign, so we'll keep an eye on whether these topics come up on the campaign trail. Sean, thank you once again for the conversation. Great. Thanks for having me, Alicia. That's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website or on YouTube by subscribing to the Yahoo Finance channel. If you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening.